Hi there, it's Matt Kabir Floyd, and welcome to my new cricket podcast series, All Out. Each episode, I'll be talking to a famous face from the sport and getting the inside track on their lives, both on and off the cricket field. Every guest has a fascinating story to tell, and that is certainly true of the always entertaining Danny Morrison. A very good fast bowler in his day, who played almost 150 internationals for New Zealand, he has since transitioned into being one of the most popular commentators on the planet, and almost certainly the wackiest. So is he that animated all of the time, or is it a persona that he puts on for the cameras? Stand by as Danny opens up not only about the art of commentary, but also about his own struggles with mental health and the personal tragedy that he's had to overcome. Danny Morrison, now the devil are you? <laughs> I'm not too bad, Matty Floyd. I've got to say, um, it's been a weird and wonderful time tearing around with COVID. And I must say, grateful that we can still do it, you know, still do what we do um, around the world. Well, you're now a well-travelled commentator, an international man of mystery. So where are you right now? I'm um, sort of in between the middle of Kolkata and Delhi in Patna, which is in the state of Bihar, and we're doing a little mini T20. It's the inaugural one. So uh, when do we start? We started on the 20th and um, goes through to the 26th of March, yeah. Next up for you then is the IPL. So I presume you, you know, you're gearing up for that right now. You, you commentate all over the world in loads of good tournaments uh, these days, but is the IPL still very much the daddy as far as the, the whole package is concerned? Oh, without a doubt. Um, and I think everyone totally uh, resonates with that. It, it really is. It is the biggest on the planet. Uh, when and obviously prior to COVID, the crowds are just immense. Um, some, of the, some of the ticket pricing is just extraordinary. If you're up in the VIP where there's food and drink laid on, there's big buffets laid on, um, Apparently, I mean, you can spend two thousand US dollars on a ticket um, for wow. for a night entertainment out, yeah. And so, I mean, th- th- those are plush and, and top order. But certainly at Chinnaswamy there at Bangalore, I remember asking and saying, "These people sitting here, and then they go into that lovely big um, sort of hallway lounge um, that we used to cut through sometimes and sneak in there and eat. They'd let us in there, but they shut that all <laughs> off down um, back in the good old days. But yeah, incredible. Yeah, pricing of it can be extraordinary." And, of course, it's absolutely chocker, and particularly uh, Mumbai, uh, Bengaluru, Chennai, Hyderabad, you, you name it, those big, big cities um, are just so passionate about it. And when the, you know, when the circus comes to town, um, look out, it's all on. We'll get on to your cricket career because a lot of people listen to your commentary and almost forget that you, you used to play the game. I grew up watching you <laughs> steaming in bowling against the English many years ago. But with the commentary, you've got this madcap style, which is so unique and different from everyone else. A lot of people ask me, is he like that the whole time or is it a bit yeah. of an act? Well, I, I think you get up, don't you? I mean, you get up for uh, a live situation. It's a bit like a, a bowler running in or a batsman suddenly switching on and taking guard. You're there. And you look at the, the likes of someone, a good example, and saw the highlights um, but on television the other day was very Coley and how up and passionate he gets when he celebrates a wicket. He's running in from long off, um, fist pumping and carrying on. Um, so when it's T20, Matt, and it's hyped like that, 
I just think it's quite a different genre. And so for me, uh, with that vernacular and that style, um, it lends itself to it because uh, very early on, um, like a lot of us, you know, you're starting, you're learning, and it's mainly test cricket or 50 over cricket before the extravaganza of T20 and T10. Um, you know, I was a lot more mellow, a lot more monotone, needed to learn to project and create. And I really? think for me, um, a little bit learning with Martin Crow, the late great Martin Crow, and his game of cricket, Max, uh, we had a league in New Zealand from about late 97 through to 2001. And that gave us a bit of a grounding um, because I tended to be a lot quieter and not project. And so hence, you know, whether it was domestic 50 overs or test match cricket, um, my voice would get lost a little bit because I'd, I'd, I'd want to be like this, just conversational like I am chatting to you now. And uh, Tim Sally runs in. He says, oh, lovely, oh, lovely bit of timing there. And that's gone through cover and that's just a beautiful piece of batsmanship there. So I'd be at that level, whereas even in a test match now, you need to be, Oh, look at the hands on this one. And it's just caressed it beautifully through cover. What a joy to watch. So there's a different energy and there's a different projection uh, in terms of commentary because you forget, you get drowned out a little bit, you know, whether it's a crowd noise. Um, for radio, they often used to leave a mic outside and the window a little ajar to get the effects. Uh, the same with television. You're going to get that anyway. And so, you know, I had to learn and um, that took time. So for me... Um, with the theatrics with it and uh, particularly IPO and people, you know, they're either going to love you or not. And, and, and you have to be fairly thick-skinned in this industry, as you know, Matt. Um, some of them will like what you do. Some of them won't. Some of them get irritated that it's noisy and loud and upbeat and, and almost um, getting a bit of a slagging on Twitter and what have you that, Morrison, mm. it's not a game mm. of rugby, you know. You know? But <laughs> in terms yeah. of T20 and my style of, if you like, elongating a word, is because I sort of know my niche of India and particular subcontinent where it's hard to understand us. And even now, I mean, we tend to talk quite quickly because it's our tongue, it's English, whereas you realise that, yes, they speak English, but if you talk too fast, it gets a bit lost. So when Coley's going through cover here, he loves to launch and go big. So you'll just drag the word out. And it's, it is a bit theatrical, but it's also about, getting the message of what's going on. And look at the hands. Ah, oh, gorgeous. So for me, that style works because you get drowned out if you're not and, and they need to sort of understand. And that's why I, my philosophy on it, Matty, is that um, it's got to be short and succinct. Try to make the point quickly, particularly if you're calling. Different if you're in the other chair and you're in colour doing the expert. You can be a little bit more in depth. Of course you can be because you're describing what's going on or what he should have tried to do or the field setting, whatever, and paint a bit more of the um, story. So it's a bit different. It's not just about, you know, projecting your voice, though, is it? And now you change that. I mean, you've also got all of these, you know, bizarre phrases which you trot out. Do you think about those in advance or do they just trip off the tongue? I mean, some of them, some of them will, because some of them you might have used a bit, and then you go back to some other old gems. Or sometimes I just find that in the situation, depending who's uh, the personnel, and that you can double up with different words around it and have fun with it, um, and the ball disappearing. I suppose for me, like you know, you've got six, you've got a maximum, uh, chucka, Hindi means six. So you've got to have different ways. That's a biggie. That's disappeared. That's out of here. This one's got an air hostess on it. 
all of that, <laughs> um, you're trying to have it, the narrative and the adjective different. So it doesn't become all the same all the time. And yet, yes, um, those that don't like me and get irritated, um, sometimes I'll be naughty on purpose and throw in fat city. Um, you know, instead <laughs> of coming out of the meat of the bat or, you know, it's got right out of the screws, I tend to use fat. Um, you know, if I if I had sort of hashtag, you know, patented that, um, the Delhi capitals are now not the Delhi daredevils, which were the double Ds, which was always fun. Um, you know, those things are around for a long time. But I hear what you're saying. Most of it's just you just go with it and it, and it just rolls because it's unfolding in front of you. Was there an element of when you started to adopt this style that you thought to yourself, I was a very good player, but I, I wasn't one of the all-time greats. So if I'm going to have to have a, a successful second career, as it were, I'm going to have to stand out a bit from the crowd. Um, not so much. No, for me it was about developing because because I was so quiet and and I'm really up front here, because I was actually quite intimidated by Ian Smith and Martin Crow. I played alongside those guys for some time. Uh, the, the last five years of Ian Smith's career, uh, Martin Crow, even a bit longer, he was captain. He was all, he, there was always that energy and you felt that, you know, this is he's the skipper. And then he became executive producer of Sky Sport. And, you know, he was bright and gifted, uh, but he's also perfectionist and liked things done a certain way at times. So you were always feeling a little bit on edge with that. And so for me, um, it was always about trying to develop. And then all of a sudden, you know, I moved from New Zealand to Australia. Um, in a way, it was a bit of a lease of life. And to get away, I think, from all that um, long history and intense um, relationships through cricket and at, and at Sky TV in New Zealand um, was a breath of fresh air for me. Mm. Before we get on to your playing career, I, I just want to just take you back to your childhood briefly and your upbringing because you were around the acting world, weren't you, quite a bit? Mm. As a so how, how much did that impact on your commentary style today? My mother was doing a, um, a, a drama diploma at Auckland City Council, uh, sorry, at Auckland, Auckland University, and then subsequently being around those types of thespians and doing pantomime, um, it did. It opened and explored a whole new avenue for me um, in that sort of uh, lifestyle and genre of people. It was just incredible. So I was around. My mother managed a dance group, uh, Limbs. was a modern dance group. Um, my mother's boyfriend, Stephen D., he did the lighting. Um, he was the lighting guy, technician backstage up in the booth uh, at the Mercury Theatre in Auckland um, in those uh, late 70s. So, you know, I got to see and appreciate uh, a whole different world. And so for me, um, if you like, being able to see that and around those type of people, um, it lent myself to be comfortable in front of the camera. Let's move on to your playing career then, because as you rightly stated there, you had a fantastic international career uh, with almost 50 tests and almost 100 one-day internationals. Your test debut, you opened the bowling with Sir Richard Hadley. How was that? Well, it was a great line in the in the local newspaper that was about um, because I got Alan Border out as my first Test wicket, sort of like Danny Morrison crossed the border um, <laughs> from fantasy land to reality was some of the headlines and and chat in it. Um, yeah, well, look, it was it was a boyhood dream to watch videos of Richard Hadley um, at the Gabba when he got nine and six 
to then two years later be playing alongside him, late 87 back at the Gabba, um, you look at it and you just sort of pinch yourself. Um, and I do, and I still often do, even now at 55. You're going, wow, you know, look what you sort of ended up doing and having a crack at and living that part of your life and your dream and your goal, if you like. Um, so when I look back at that, opening with Hadley uh, was extraordinary. And being around that very good 1980s powerhouse New Zealand side, who never lost a test series at home in New Zealand from 1980 to 1990, extraordinary. Mm, a great record indeed. With Hadley, what did you learn specifically off him? Because he was quite an interesting character, wasn't he? Very single-minded. Yeah, and I, and I mean, you're going to get people who will, um, you know, will not so much bad press, but just that he was very focused um, and he was single-minded, but he wanted to be a great. And I think by playing county cricket and fine-tuning those skills late in his career um, made him the bowler that he became, and particularly from 1982 when he shortened his run-up, got a lot of stick for it, to when he stopped playing in England in 1990. Incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. Um, I think he was the fastest man ever to go from really, you know, 200 test wickets to 400 extraordinary and um for a kiwi to be able to do that um just phenomenal so for me um maybe for the older guys he might not have been so um forthright of passing on knowledge um but i roomed with him in australia in 87 with sir richard and then again in late 88 when he came there to, to go past botham's record so john wright was captain and it was a hell of a time a real eye-opener for a lot of us young guys and so when i look back at that rooming with him on a couple of occasions, particularly in Australia and India, just sitting back and chewing the fat about what you think about your run-up, top of your run-up. Um, here in India, you really probably bowl two effort balls and over, and the rest of it, you're trying to just be in the groove um, and not get hit for too many and be around and be sensible um, about percentage bowling. And so he often would say too, because I watched Lily and Hadley a lot growing up, getting in close to the stumps, um, and people have often commented how close I'd come past the umpire is because I watched Hadley do that. If I look at it now, I mean, because of T20, I mean, you know, you would have subtly experimented more with grips, cross seamers. I mean, I used to use an off cutter with my fingers instead of just subtly down it. I'd go a lot wider on it, uh, particularly in India when we used a, a juke type of ball uh, because it played a lot with the kookaburra. Um, and you'd love to have had a little bit more of a pronounced seam, just subtly. Um, we're always bitching on about the kookaburra. Why can't they just have a, you know, a, a universal scene like the juke ball? Okay, the juke's doing its thing. That's fine. But the kookaburra should have a, just a subtly better scene, and it lasts better. The ball's harder. The juke ball lasts better. It reverses better, um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a superior cricket ball, no doubt about it. So when I talked all of those things with Richard over the years about grips and different balls and all those sort of things roaming with him, um, I found him superb for me. It's interesting you talk about the ball. I've spoken to you about this before. You've basically admitted that you did a bit of ball tampering and it was quite in those days, wasn't it? Was everyone doing it in the 80s and 90s? Well, pretty much more the cat was let out of the bag. I think you look at England in that 1992 series when Pakistan had won the World Cup and then Imran had to stop and retired. Um, was turning 40, for goodness sake. So you had Javed Mendad resume the captaincy, and you had two Rottweilers let off the leash in terms of the two Ws. And, of course, Wazim and Waka, and we knew what was going on in 1990, where the ball was being scratched and altered. Basically, they were 
um, rushing the aging process of the ball and making it swing more. Because in Pakistan, as you know, generally flat surfaces, hardly a blade of grass on it, and you had to do something in the air. Spinners could do it right, wrist spinners or good finger spinners, and bats would have a ball. Quick men, once that ball got old and lost its shine, um, you had to do something special. And so that's where you can see where Safras and Imran and all those old wonderful anecdotes of what they had to do and aging the ball for sure. Everyone just sort of look, you know, lifting the quarter seam a bit naughty, totally. But, you know, I think in one day cricket, most certainly um, it, it got abused a bit more in the white ball because the white ball got older quicker and then you could sort of just subtly, you know, if it was getting scratched or picked at, um, it was other players within the team to, to look after and man manage the ball and we'd keep it shiny and then it would reverse, of course. And then the batters didn't like that. So then they go, hello, oh, let's have two balls. Of course you do. And then remember it used to change, oh, look, we're changing the ball after 34 hours. The ball's got a bit grey and the batters don't like it because it doesn't come on enough and it's reversing too much and they want to hit it further. They want a harder ball. So all of that you can see where there's been this ebb and flow around the ball a lot, particularly in white ball cricket. Um, and in red ball cricket, we've seen what the two W's created and everyone else has followed. I mean, myself and Darren Goff, uh, similar builds, get a little bit more sort of one o'clock on there, get a bit slingy two o'clock. Because when you watch the great Lusith Malinga and co, um, when they're out at three o'clock horizontally and get the uh, angle of the seam right, man, it reverses big and goes a lot more uh, prodigiously through the air and dramatically. So there's all of those bits and pieces that are well documented um, in various forms of you know, platforms of media to, to say, yeah, look, we're all a bit naughty. But at the end of the day too, um, the batters had such a um, – advantage on some of those good surfaces is there any surprise that people are going to be a bit naughty with the ball i want to move on to something a bit more serious now and something that uh, has touched you as well and that is mental health and something that a lot of uh, cricketers are now talking about why do you think cricketers in particular seem to be more susceptible to mental health struggles than other sportsmen i think because for me i think it stands out that it's a long game and particularly if you play at the international level, they're long tours. And if you're good enough uh, batting, bowling, keeping, whatever, and you play in the formats of T20 but are still dabbling in test cricket or even just playing internationally for your 50 overside and T20 and the franchises, you're on the road a lot. And so your hotel room, as I like to put it in, in, in writing one time, was um, – uh, was it was like your cell, you know, you're going back to a cell and you you felt alone because you are alone and you've got to spend a lot of time on your own. And even more so now, it's been highlighted with, with the pandemic and COVID. So, you know, I, I look at classic examples of guys being away from home and not enjoying that. Um, you know, Marcus Triscothic's had issues, um, even big Stevie Harmison, you know, and a lot more Triscothic and, and, and those guys um, have been great and at the forefront of doing that and having a real discussion about it openly. And I think it needs to be. And then you've seen other, a lot of the Aussie guys in recent times saying, hey, listen, I'm not feeling good about myself. Um, I'm doubting myself and I'm actually um, feeling like almost like the walls are closing in because of uh, the amount of cricket played and the time away from loved ones and next to kin, um, that quality of time. Um, is a huge factor. And I think for a lot of us still grapple with it. Um, and then you throw in the mix whether you've either had a loved one who's passed, um, you know, whether that's through an illness or suicide or a tragedy, um, an accident, then that, you know, 
certainly played on for me a lot because you were on the circuit on the road. Um, and let's be honest, um, I'm quite a social creature too. I mean, I like a drink and a cigar late at night. You and I have sat around and chatted and, and, and studios post that, men outside, sharing a cigar and having a nice chuckle over red wine. Nothing outrageous, but having a debrief because you're so fired up. And, it, and whether it's been a commentary game or a studio and the game's gone great, it's it's hard to unwind quickly. You know, all the lights, camera, action, Maddie, as we know, um, and you do. And so there is that lifestyle where it's, you know, you're finishing late, carrying on, and then having some downtime debrief with your, with your co-workers, colleagues. Um, and that's when you start to think about more things in depth and away from family, missing out on this. You know, time keeps moving and slipping on. You mentioned suicide. I've just been touched, uh, unfortunately, by suicide. Would, would you mind just talking a bit about that and how it affected you? Yeah, look, my sister, who was a couple of years younger, um, you know, spiralled. And um, it was very difficult because um, suddenly going from a, a very earth-type mother with three children um, to you know, questioning what things were all about. Um, and Zara was Zara was quite different. Um, she sort of uh, very um, eclectic in terms of the group of people she would see and, and, and hang with, uh, quite alternative and relaxed and uh, a bit like out on the commune, um, loved the great outdoors and the rural scene away from all the, the hype of the city, uh, really didn't resonate with her. All her children were home birthed. So for Zazie... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there was a lot that we didn't pick up on and you just don't. And so then um, you spiral and, and, and really had quite a psychotic episode in that she really was suddenly found walking in a towel on the beach. A couple of those episodes um, right up to before her suicide was that um, it's almost like she really wasn't present enough and was in an outer body experience and feeling like there were these demons coming for her and what have you. And... Um, yeah, sadly, um, had an opportunity where went under the house and took her life. It wasn't easy and, 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 and never is, and, I, and, it, and it always stays with you. Um, it's ironic that we're having this um, podcast, really, because another friend lost his wife um, only five years ago today. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's so prevalent and even worse now, Maddie, with COVID. Um, so when, you know, you experience that, particularly next to kin, um, you know, you'd have these strange dreams. And it took me seven years before waking up on my sister's anniversary, um, which was the day after my birthday, um, was always a sensitive time. And it took me seven years to not wake up and be in tears, sobbing, um, because of you naturally, as I think as a brother or as, or as mother, whatever, a next of kin, um, thinking, you know, there is that guilt thing. You know, what could I have done? Why didn't I see what was coming or where Zara was going down this black hole? And so, you know, I had that for a dozen. They talk about a seven-year cycle. Well, it, it took that amount of time um, to get over that part of it. But, again, I don't think it ever leaves you at times. Um, you know, and I, I'm the first to, to front up and say there were really times when um, you are very emotional um, and you're away for a long time and you'll catch yourself, I'll be on my own, <clears throat> even now feeling a bit choked up, having a cigar and drinking and, and getting quite teary um, because it, it, it just it, it never leaves you. And so God help you, you know, if you're a mother. And my mother, it, it aged her massively. Um, and and as, as 
at times very difficult still. But, you know, you move on and you've got other people to look after and, and get on with your life. And so that old cliche of, you know, it's Zara would be looking now, she'd be, she'd be really pleased of how the children have turned out and because of her mother, my mother, you know, doing that role and taking on such a big role for her grandchildren. Um, so, again, different scenarios for different people, different households that have had to deal with suicide. Um, and excuse my French, yeah, look, it's fucking awful. Um, and it really is difficult for those because if it does happen, out, of, you feel it's out of the blue, and what could I have done differently or to help? Um, in those early years, is is tough. But I still think um, if you can find a therapist that you resonate with, um, male or female, either way, uh, I think it's important because they are neutral, uh, they're objective, uh, and of course they've you know they've clearly got no history with you on, emo in a, on an emotional level. So uh, I found it really good. It really did help for Kim and I um, because sure I spiraled and got on it, drank too much and, you know, um, compromised my marriage and all that sort of thing because I was just in such a bad place um, and it was difficult, there's no doubt. And that was part of the reason of moving to Australia and then, you know, compounding things, sure. But um, therapy for me was, was immense. Yeah, I totally agree with that, actually. I think having a, a bit of therapy is, is good for everyone and it's not a sign of, of weakness, it's a sign of, of strength. Oh, You've got totally. to find that right one as you said which uh is different for everyone and you've got to probably go through a, a couple before you find that right person just on that I, I find it because it's so much more prevalent and because of this pandemic because i think we're opening up as a human race um you're quite right you hit on the head it, it's more of a strength of character to admit that something's not right here um and i'm making an ass of myself or you know i'm compromising my marriage or my children's relationship all of that um, and particularly for men, because we are the, traditionally the hunter-gatherers, um, all that scenario, stereotyping, I know, but in this modern world of male and female, yin and yang, and, and women clearly powerful too, of course, and big jobs and careers, everything. But I think for men to own it, um, to get out there and actually just be real and be honest, and if it's not going well, there's nothing wrong with speaking up and putting your hand up and going, I'm struggling here, you know, I really am. And so the thing of talking about it because of social media, because of platform, because of digital and, and all of this and podcasting that's out there, um, you just hope that, you you know, more people can be helped uh, and not, you know, leap off the cliff and, and, and end it all. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. Just got to get it all out there. I feel like we covered a bit of everything there, you know, the ups. ups. <laughs> Really enjoyed it. Oh, why don't we finish on a, on a bit of a light-hearted note? You know, send us out with a bit of classic Danny Morris commentary. Well, we should be here. You should be here, Matty Floyd, with the partner pilots, the double Ps, because I tell you what, they love it to bits and pieces. We love the game, and this one has gone miles. <laughs> Absolutely perfect, mate. Danny Morrison, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Great to see you and great to chat. <laughs>